Today's episode is sponsored by the Think Like a Game Designer Mastery Course. Until July 1st only, you can sign up for the Ultimate Game Design Course. The course includes step-by-step video lessons, live coaching calls with Stoneblade Entertainment CEO Justin Gary, and an exclusive Discord community of like-minded designers. Students will work together to prepare to pitch your game to companies like AEG, Brotherwise, and Stoneblade in a live remote session. And Board Game Design Lab listeners get an exclusive discount by entering the code BGDL at checkout. Please go to thinklikeagamedesigner.com to find out more. And if you're looking for a partner to help you with marketing, I recommend you reach out to Andrew Lowen at Next Level Web. In the last year, Andrew and his company have helped board game creators raise more than $2 million on Kickstarter. And 91% of those campaigns funded in the first 24 hours. And 74% of those campaigns were from first-time creators. They have a system that works and offer solutions ranging from helping you build ads for your project all the way to fully managing your marketing campaign. So if you're looking for a reliable marketing partner for your upcoming campaign, visit nextlevelweb.com slash kickstarter and fill out a contact form. Hosting for the Board Game Design Lab podcast is sponsored by Quartermaster Logistics, the leader in crowdfunding fulfillment and warehousing. Check them out at qmlogistics.com. Welcome to the Board Game Design Lab podcast, a proud member of the Dice Tower Network. Each week, we want to bring you an insightful interview on a specific topic in board game design to help you design and create games people love. And now, here's your host, Gabe Barrett. What's up, my friends? Welcome to the Board Game Design Lab. Today, we're getting into the process. We're talking to Justin Gary from Stoneblade Entertainment, and I'm, I'm looking forward to picking his brain about his game design process, his playtesting process, his publishing process. He's a guy that's been around the industry for quite some time, done extraordinarily well, had a ton of really successful Kickstarter campaigns, successful games and expansions, and even dabbled in hybrid games and online games, like all sorts of really cool things. Justin, welcome to the show. Yeah, it's great to be here. I, uh, I have a lot of fun things to talk about with you. Yeah, I'm excited, man. This is a, a little different than the norm. Typically, I'll invite a guest on and we'll dive into some specific topic. But one thing I really enjoy doing is inviting people on the show that are just masters of the craft that have been designing games for a long time or publishing for a long time, and then just talking through best practices. Tell me what you used to do 10 years ago, and then now what you're doing, you know, what you're doing as far as game design and publishing and all that. And so I'm just, I'm just looking forward to picking your brain on basically every aspect of game design. Let's go start to finish all the way from idea to published game on a shelf marketing and all that kind of stuff. Uh, But before we get into that, you came on the show a while back. And so maybe listeners remember that episode, but just in case they didn't hear that one, who are you? How'd you get into game design? All that kind of thing. Sure. Yeah. It's, uh, it's great to, it's great to be back. And you know, the, the, the short version of my background um, is actually, I started as a professional Magic the Gathering player. Um, I won a U.S. national championships when I was 17, then went on to win the pro tour world championships, traveling around the world, doing that. That's how I paid my way through college. Uh, and then after a brief and ill-advised stint at law school, I uh, went and started designing games at uh, Upper Deck uh, Entertainment and did uh, design the Versus System trading card game, um, at the, which was Marvel and DC battling trading card game, as well as uh, working on the World of Warcraft trading card game and lead designing and eventually becoming the brand manager for the World of Warcraft miniatures game, uh, as well as a few other projects before I quit there, started my own company, launched Ascension uh, deck building games, probably what I'm best known for these days, um, and then uh, several other games along those that type under the Stoneblade Entertainment brand, including Shards of Infinity, Ringmaster, Soulforge, uh, and then I've also done a lot of consulting work for other companies and launched toy-based games like Bakugan and um, several others that uh, you know have gotten me quite 
uh, quite a ways around the industry, working for big toy companies, launching my own stuff, launching, working in the hobby game space, working in the digital game space. I've kind of gotten a little, little bit of everything in my background. Yeah, very cool. You, you've worked on some really well-known properties and licenses and then also created your own personal brands and things like that with Ascension and others. And so, first of all, how long have you been designing? And don't be like, well, I started designing when I was six years old. Okay, I know like all kids are creative and all that. But like, like really and truly designing games, not necessarily professionally, but like jumping into the hobby. Yeah, well, so, so this is really a great part of the story here because uh, you know as i mentioned i was you know a professional gamer uh from 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 early on right in my in, in high school I, I started making money playing games but that was as a pro player and it was a very big difference when i got invited to start designing games was really that first time when i went to come work for upper deck and they invited me to come work on the versus system because i was good at playing games but i wasn't I never considered myself to be a creative person. I never considered myself to be the type of person who could even design games. I kind of felt like, you know, almost a little bit of like a fraud getting pulled into this thing. And and my my background of being sort of able to analytically break a game down into its parts to try to win wasn't the same skill set as what it takes to make a game that's fun that people actually want to play. And so what I had to do was really take, you know, fortunately for me, I had you know, talented people around. And I was also, I had a job and deadlines and things that forced me to learn very quickly. Um, that's one of the principles I, I, I often try to teach now is that, you know, deadlines are magic and you want to have groups of people that are going to hold you accountable um, because that's going to help you move forward and move something from being just kind of a hobby and something that maybe you enjoy listening to podcasts about or reading about and something that you actually do. Um, and then I had to kind of break it down into principles. And one of the things that was great that I learned and is that you're not, Game uh, creativity and designing in general is not some magic secret sauce. And obviously anybody that's been listening to this podcast for long enough knows that, but that there is a repeatable recipe that all designers use in one form or another that can get you from point A to point B to point C to getting your game done and getting it out the door. And that repeating and going through what I call the core design loop uh, is the heart of the process. And so I was able to kind of break that down and then that helped me to then, you know, write a book and do my own podcast and start teaching that to other people um, because I felt like, the mystery was like super scary for me when I didn't know what I was doing. And I felt like there was some, you know, some secret sauce. And, and now that I know there isn't, and it's just, it's not a secret, but it doesn't make it easy, right? The practice of going through it and we'll talk, we'll break that down uh, is something that I had to, had to learn and I'm now excited to share with others. Yeah, absolutely. I read a quote from Cal Newport a while back and he was talking about creative people and people that want to get into creative professions. And he said, you have to think like an artist but work like an accountant. And it's like, yeah, you got to show up. It's nine to five. It's getting in the, the zone every day, whether the zone is easy to get into or not, it doesn't matter. And not waiting for inspiration and motivation, but like, here's the work, here are the deadlines. Let's dive in. Let's create this amazing, in our case, game. And uh, yeah, I think that's really good advice. Like you have to get in, just, just do the reps, just do the work. And so yeah. tell me, tell me about some of the things that you found interesting as you went from playing games, especially playing, playing games professionally. And as a professional, you're having to break down mechanisms and strategies like you're having to think a lot deeper than your typical gamer that's just showing up at game night and playing a game like even if they're really good they're probably not thinking on the same level so you're already you know kind of breaking games down which i think is very helpful as far as designing but tell me about some of the things that were interesting to you or unexpected when you went from gamer only to now i'm also designing yeah well one of the one of the most important things that i learned is that the type of player that I am is not actually the most important type of player. <laughs> um, that there is this, the you know, as has been kind of talked, uh, Mark Rosewater has the useful terms of sort of psychographic profiles, right? There's the, the he uses the terms Timmy, Johnny, and Spike. Um, I there are other ways to break this down, but the the fundamentals are that you know there are some players who are there like 
trying to win and they're very motivated by winning and like that deep strategy stuff. There's other players who are trying to, you know, create this experience and trying to like have some, you know, some specific experience of what's going on. And there's others for whom they're trying to express themselves and there's part of this social interaction. And, and there's, there's a lot of different player types and you need to be able to consider all of them. But the, the easiest way to, to, to boil this down because is that your job as a designer is to craft an experience for your audience. Right. And your audience is usually players, but sometimes it's not right. If you have streaming audiences or sports games or things like that, but that, that crafting of an experience and understanding that what's important is the emotions that you create in your, in your players was just so far beyond me. And I know it sounds kind of silly to me saying it now, but maybe for other people, it's not like, whereas before it's like all like, okay, the details of the mechanics and I want to have these deep strategies and I want to have these things be balanced and all that stuff matters, but only insofar as it serves that core experience since you always want to keep coming back to that fundamental question okay what's the experience i want to create what is you know what's fun about this what's unique about this what's the thing that's going to get people coming back for more what's the you know what's going to get people to jump out of their seat or like really remember what's going on and have something that they're going to tell their friends about and just knowing that that's the heart of the job that's heart of what's going on and then and again there's a bigger secret here right we i talk about these principles are universalizable they are the same. It's true for any other art form, right? And if you're writing a book or you're painting, a, or, you know, painting, right? You want to create this experience. You want to create these emotions. Uh, and so that was like the biggest kind of aha moment for me when I was first shifting over from being a player to being a designer. Uh, and then from there, you know, you start to appreciate more of what's going on, right? There's a tendency amongst gamers who are very mechanics focused to think that the theme doesn't matter right and that's just kind of this add-on and and you learn well of course it matters right and the stories that you tell are so powerful in the ways that people engage with what you're doing right if it's you know i was started working on you know this these comic book based trading card games and it's like you know batman and superman fighting doesn't feel right doesn't is that, that that's very different than you know a seven seven attacking a ten ten or whatever right like it just the the the, the narratives and the and the whole approach of what you're doing um, became much more important to me and became something I appreciated more and more as I as I worked on more and more designs and and did more and more play tests and saw what worked and what didn't yeah that makes a lot of sense I've talked to several designers especially some very well-known designers and one thing they mentioned the value of is empathy and being able to put yourself in the shoes of the gamer that's going to be enjoying or experiencing your game and how how important that is, and it's not something that necessarily comes easily or naturally to everybody. I think if you spend two minutes on the internet, you will find that empathy is hard and very few people seem to have it. And so, yeah, I think that's one of those things that you just have to kind of develop an understanding of. Now, is there any any tips or any advice you have as far as how to develop empathy, how to you know realize what you did as far as like, hey, I am not the only gamer, like my style is not the only style. What would you tell somebody who's trying to figure that out And uh, as far as game design? Yeah, it's a great question. And and I think the first tip I would give is, look, start with yourself, um, because you actually don't, you're not as aware of your own play experiences as you think you are. Very often, just like when you're watching a movie, right? When you're playing a game, you get lost in the experience of it. You're just there, you're participating, you're playing, you're having fun. When you're in a movie, you've often forget you're in a movie theater, right? You just like get immersed in the characters and what's going on. And as a, as a designer, when you're playing games, you want to take a step back kind of mentally. And when you see yourself having these big emotional reactions, right? When you're excited, waiting to roll a die and hoping for the good result or trying to top deck the key card off the top of the thing, or some monster shows up and you're scared, right? Like pause, 
you train yourself to pause in those moments and look at, okay, what caused this reaction in me? What is it that's, what is it that, was it this mechanic thing? Was it the fact that there was this uncertainty here? Was it the fact that I was able to make a decision and I had the agony of not knowing which one it was? What was pulling me in one direction versus another, right? Break that stuff down because it's obviously you have the most access to your own mind, but we aren't used to using that access. We aren't used to training ourselves. And so, and so, and, and I, I highly recommend everybody keeps a journal or something on you that you can write on. You could do this in your phone or other device, but I actually like having a physical journal because at least, I don't know if you have the same experience I do. Once I pick up my phone, I tend to get distracted. Um, so you could even write down those things. So you keep, so you note them when they're, when they're happening. And so, so step one is start, you know, know thyself. Um, and then to be able to expand out to other playgroups and to be able to expand out to other minds, of course, you want to be exposed to them, right? So find friends, find people, find playgroups that are in these other types, right? Where that don't aren't just like you and watch them play the games. And don't just like ask them what they think, but watch for their reactions. See when they get are leaning in and engaged in the game. See when they like, you know, their, their voice goes up and they get excited or they start checking their phone and leaning back, right? Like look for the nonverbal cues and then think, okay, what led them to that situation, right? What, and you know, you can ask them what they like in games and what led to that too. Like it, it's helpful to get the verbal feedback, but I find the nonverbal feedback is way more powerful because just like we, like ourselves, right? People don't necessarily know what it is that's, giving them these exciting moments, what it is that's causing the stuff. As the designer, you know, people are always right when it comes to what their reactions are, but they're often wrong when they interpret how they got there, right? And your job is to get better at that craft of understanding what is leading to those results. So it's just observing yourself, get paying attention to the things that cause those big emotional impacts and those environments in you, and then actively seeking out other player types and others that you can then observe them while they play. Um, and ideally you can get this, you know, you can do this while you're just gaming with friends and you're a part of the game, but you're just kind of secretly monitoring um, or even better is you can watch people play games and not play yourself. Um, you know, some of the best experiences I've had are when I can, a couple games I've worked on where I've been able to do one of those cool, like one way mirror uh, ob observation things. You can watch people play the games when they don't know you're watching them. And then that's great because you get all of the ideal uh, sort of honest feedback and, and and reactions from them, although it can be incredibly painful when they, you know, they play your game wrong and you want to just shout at them like, no, that's not right. You got to do it this way. But you learn a lot. <laughs> yeah. And that's really, really good advice in my brain. I kind of liken it to sports. And the more you do something, the more it becomes second nature. You get that muscle memory built up that you know where the sideline is, you know where the three point line is. Like you just get a really good feel for how to do all these things. And it's the same thing in creativity you know, a movie maker or a writer, or in our case, a game designer, you, you've gone through so many reps and you've done so many things and you've been through so many play tests and, and worked on so many games that turned out to be trash. Like you've done it so many times that you get a really good feel. You get a really good gut feeling for what something is going to do. And so as you work on a new mechanic or, or new theme, new experience, you have all this prior knowledge, all this film you've already watched, all these like second nature kind of things that have now gone into it where it did, it does get a little bit easier. Have you, have you noticed that uh, in your own process where things have gotten just a little bit easier than where they were, you know, 10 years ago that now when you come up with an idea, you come up with a mechanism, things just kind of flow a little bit better that you used to have to work a lot harder for before? Oh yeah, no, no question. I mean, the, the process is the same, but the speed with which that I, I can go through it now is so much faster, right? Like I can... In addition to traditional prototyping and playtesting, I often also recommend that people do like do a mental prototype, right? Where you envision the whole thing in your own mind and you 
see where all the pieces go and you see how people will play through it. And that when you're first starting at design, you're going to miss so much in those, in those mental play tests. But once you're, you've done this enough, you can catch so many things just even in your own head as you're, as you're looping through, you're like, Oh, that's going to be a problem. That's going to be a problem. And you can fix things faster. Or as soon as a play test starts, you can instantly see that, okay, that's not going to work. I'm going to quickly iterate this even before we move forward and, and move it, you know, move it to the next phase. And so you can kind of just, just, it's, it's more, you know, at first you learn to crawl, then you're walking and now you can kind of run and fly your way through a lot of these things. And, you know, you still hit walls, you still hit challenges, but so many things that used to be these huge barriers are now, you know, very quickly, oh yeah, this is just like this other problem. And I have this set of solutions that can solve it quickly. So we'll pick one of those and move forward. Uh, and so that's just, that just comes with practice and iteration. And, and unfortunately, I wish there was a better way to like develop that skill. But as you said, it's, it's that muscle memory. It's just that, that practice time. So, you know, learning the ropes and learning the, the basics is critical. And then it's just iterate, 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 and you'll get better at it. Right. I mean, nobody ever got in shape by listening to podcasts about getting in shape or reading books about getting in shape. Like you have to get in the weight room, you have to get in the gym, you have to get on the treadmill, run around the track. Or you just have to put the reps in. And that's where the actual getting good at something comes from. All the knowledge is excellent. And I feel like listening to podcasts and reading books and taking courses and all that stuff is going to be super helpful. But at the end of the day, there's just no substitute for reps. And I love the whole concept of like the mental image. And I think that's one thing that I've really noticed in my own designs is I've gotten so much better in coming up with an idea or a mechanism or an experience and then sitting on the couch. And it looks like I've had a stroke. Like my wife will walk by and be like, are you okay? Like, are you all right? And oh yeah, I'm just, I'm just playing a game. I've been playing a game for like 30 minutes in my head and like every turn and seeing how it's going to go. And like, oh, that's going to take too long. That's going to make the downtime too long. But you can play out so much in your head. That way, when you do get to the actual, like designing it, the game, prototyping it, play testing it, it goes so much faster. But like you said, it just takes a while. And one thing I've talked to so many new designers, they get frustrated because they can't get the idea that's in their head onto the table. Like it just doesn't work. It's so great. It's like the most perfect idea. It's going to sell more copies than Monopoly in their brain. And then they get it on the table and it's like, this is garbage. And it's like, yes, that is the case with every single creative avenue there is. There is no artist that just sat down and painted Picasso level art or sat down and wrote Tolkien or Hemingway level books. I mean, it just doesn't happen. You just have to do it over and over and over again and then get better. And so, yeah. Yeah. And I, and I I don't want to interrupt, but I really do think it's important to underline this point because this as much you know we'll talk through you know we've already talked through some of it we'll talk through all the specifics of the process of design they're just not that complicated like but the hard work is that putting your work out on the table having it fail and fall flat on your face being willing to take that feedback refine your thing and then do it again fall on your face again get up do it again and like that ability the emotional struggle that comes from doing that is the hard work it's that it's very and and i and and realizing that the thing that seemed like such a brilliant awesome idea that you've fallen in love with really isn't as great as you think it is or maybe this other small part of it could be developed into something but this thing's definitely not going to work that's very very hard and that's where most people stop most people, once they see that, like, nope, it just doesn't come exact, exactly as it's in my head. I can't, it's not perfect the first time. I didn't make Monopoly or Magic the Gathering or whatever it was I was trying to make on my first go. They stop. And that's where I really try to, like, push people forward. That's why when I talk about things like the importance of, you know, it, obviously information is great, but having some kind of real deadlines, real accountability, ideally, you know, something that's going to push you forward to put things out there. Ideally, you've got a community of people that can push you through because it is hard, even for people who have been doing this as long as I have. When I have a new big project, it's scary. It's hard to get it out there. And and so it's something I really try to emphasize for everybody. It's like, 
be willing to push through that, find people that can help support you to push through that. Because if you can get past that part, if you can get to the place where you can emotionally be willing to put stuff out there, take the heat, take the criticism, and then keep going, you're, you can succeed as a designer. And if you can't, which most people, you know, just don't, uh, then, then you won't succeed. Just bottom line. Yeah, for sure. Uh, I've talked about it several times on the show in the past. It's like, if you can get into the mindset that your mother-in-law is coming for dinner, right? Like it's amazing how clean my house gets when my mother-in-law is about to show up. It's like, all right, we got to pick this stuff up. We got to vacuum. We got to sweep. We got to get this stuff done because she's going to be here in an hour. And if you can kind of live in that mode and, and get things done and, and hit deadlines and progress on your, your projects day in and day out, then you can have some really cool stuff happen. Uh, and I want to go back to what you said as far as like failure. It is. It's just about getting up. What did Thomas Edison say? Some of the effect of like, I didn't fail. I just found 10,000 ways that don't work and I'm just going to keep going and we're going to eventually figure this thing out. And it, it's hard. Like that's not an easy mindset to have. And I feel like a lot of people give up when they're maybe on the verge of being able to like peek over the mountain and like finally get to the top of the hill and, and come on the other side. But um, but anyway, let's let's kind of dive into your personal process. Let's talk all the way from idea to finished product, it's on the marketplace. And so tell me about like when you first come up with an idea, right? Now, it's a, let's, let's not worry so much about licenses. Like very few people listening to this podcast are going to have a publisher come to them and say, hey, I wanted you to design a DC superhero game. That's probably not going to happen. So let's talk in terms of a brand new idea, brand new IP that you've come up with. Maybe it's a mechanism, maybe it's a theme, but tell me how your brain works now as a pro designer and coming up with an idea and then start working on the design process from the beginning. Sure. So, so step one is, uh, you know, I call sort of inspiration, right? You need some kind of seed that's going to give you like say, okay, what do I want to make? Right. And for some people, they've got a million ideas that they want to make and they're not sure, you know, how to move them forward for other people. The even just coming up with a game idea is really tough. Um, for me, uh, it, it definitely now for sure more in the million ideas category, but I'll give a few tips for people just to make sure you can get to this place. So, uh, number one, uh, is my, my tip is always be exploring. Um, you constantly want to be on the search for stuff that's out there, right? So that be, it could be playing a bunch of different games and not just games that you love, but also games that are different weird categories. It could also be exploring different like topics and, you know, genres and other fields of interest, hobbies, anything, right? Just explore the world because any, the, the, the easiest way to come up with a new idea is to take two things that haven't been done, you know, combined together and combine them together. Two ideas that already exist, right? So, you know, when I first played Dominion and I thought, wow, this is amazing. Like the idea of taking a, you know, a TCG and putting it into a single box and it kind of had this constructed deck feel. That's awesome. Well, what I really love is drafting. And so I want to combine drafting and a more sort of rapidly changing smaller subset of cards available with this idea of deck building for Dominion and Ta-da, Ascension exists, right? And so obviously there's a lot of steps there, but the, the idea for Ascension, the inspiration for Ascension came from there. Um, and so we now have, um, so today I'm always in the same way. I'm looking out for these things. So like, for example, you know, the, I really love the um, idea that Richard came up with for Keyforge of having a uniquely, a unique deck that is one thing, you know, that every everybody's deck is different, right? It solves this core problem of deck building games, of, of not traditional TCGs that, a, you've just got to like chase the rarest cards and only those matter. And everybody builds the same deck all the time and the tournaments all look the same and all that stuff gets solved. Now you buy, everybody buys a deck. They're all unique. You just play and go. But I felt like I wanted some customization. Like it was not enough that I could cust I couldn't customize at all. And so now the new version of Soulforge Fusion that we're making is what if you had that unique deck element of Keyforge, but you had the, the single element of uh, customization like Smash Up 
or the new magic uh, jumpstart packs where you just like pick any two halves and put them together and go. That little bit of customization is a big deal. So that's now the inspiration for Soulforge Fusion, right? And so looking for stuff like that is where I come from to do that. Or I played Quacks of Quidlingburg recently and I love the like pressure luck mechanic from that. And I wanted like, what does that look like in a deck building game? And I'm working on a, de- a new deck building game that has that kind of concept, right? So just finding those different genres, finding those different elements, combining them, to combine two things together that, that haven't been combined before or pick a theme that you like and and try to invert something that already exists right so you know another one that i have that's still in the works but it's like you know i love the idea of worker placement games but i hate that most of them are like themed around farming or civilizations coming up like i want dragons battling and so i'm working on a worker placement game where dragons are battling instead you know and so just find stuff that you're passionate about uh constantly be on the lookout for more things you're excited about Right? You never know. Like Wingspan, obviously, as a you know strategy game that combined a love of birds and you know the, uh, you would never think that that would be hugely successful, but the passion and the excitement and the detail shone through, and so it became one of the most successful games of the last several years. Uh, and so those things are always keys to finding inspiration and finding good ideas. And if this is something that still sounds scary to you, then I recommend you just take that journal that I recommended you got and every day write down five new game ideas. Just and, and, and accept that many, most of them are going to be bad. Just pick any two things, combine them together, smash them up, uh, and just get in the practice of writing those things down uh, and just getting your brain used to generating these things and putting them out there. And, and, and eventually, you'll have something that you're excited about to be able to move forward on. Very cool. All right, I heard a guy talking recently about, he was, I think he was talking about business, but you can apply this to creativity and apply this to game design or a lot of other avenues. And he was talking about how there are two paths when you're pursuing excellence. You can either try to be the best or you can try to be the only. So you can be the best in your field, the best service, you can have the best phone product, whatever you're selling, or you can be the only company that does X, Y, or Z. And I think it's similar in game design. Like you're going to come up with, do you want to be the best deck builder? And so you're going to borrow from a lot of other games, but you're going to like create a better package than what they have, better game experience, whatever. Or are you going to try to come up with something a little more novel, a little more unique and be the only. And so tell me your thoughts about that because as as a publisher and as a designer, you have to be very conscious of the time it's going to take to put into a game and bring it to market. And then that game has to make money. Uh, you're not in necessarily in a position where you can do a whole bunch of projects that are just like passion projects. And, uh, you know, it's only going to make $5,000, but who cares? Like you have to make payroll, you have to pay other people. And so there's more to think about from your end. And so tell me when you're trying to figure out an idea, trying to decide, hey, is this worth my time? Is this worth bringing to market? Is this going to be the best of the only? Tell me about like, what you're thinking and how you ultimately decide to pursue a game idea. Yeah, so... Uh... There's a couple a couple of interesting things to piece out here. One is uh, your, you know, being the best or the only is an interesting way to frame it. I look at it as you need absolutely, in, especially in the modern era, you need a powerful elevator pitch or unique selling point to your game that's going to get people to pay attention. And without that, it doesn't matter how great your game is. People are never going to find it. They're never going to look, take the time to play it. And so regardless of what it is that you're trying to make, you need to be able to, like, if I say the words to, of what, you know, in, in a line or two, I need to get your attention, right? So if I didn't, you know, you could, you, you uh, listeners and you can actually judge how well I did this because I just did it for three of my games, right? That I'm like, things that I'm working on. And if it didn't, if the idea of like Keyforge and Smash Up with a Soulforge game engine didn't attract you or Worker Placement Game with Awesome Dragons Battling didn't attract you, right? That instantly I have something that a certain segment of the audience is going to get excited about and come 
and come join. And so I think from day one, from an inspiration idea, I always have that as top of mind. And when I talk about the game to people, and I'm pretty open about talking about games, right? The, all three projects I mentioned to you are actually ones I'm working on that are not yet released. Uh, and I, I don't mind talking about these sorts of things because I want to get feedback. I want to see, are people reacting to that and be like, wow, that's awesome. I want to learn more. Or are they kind of, okay, cool. That's nice. You know, move on. Um, and so you want to be looking for that all the time. I think it's really important that you get that level of excitement and enthusiasm. And if you can't tell me something about your game, enough of a pitch of your game in two sentences or less, uh, then and that, that gets people excited, then it's not a good project. You should set it aside. Um, so that's kind of principle number one. Uh, principle number two, I would say for this is, you know, you still just got to be driven by things you're passionate about. I don't like, I don't chase, even though I, I'm conscious of like the elevator pitch all the time, I don't chase like trends. I don't chase things that like, oh, if only, you know, this type of game is popular, therefore I will make this type of game. It's got to be something that I'm personally excited about. And I don't mind maybe if for better ways, like spinning my wheels a little bit on something to kind of develop it if I think it's it's awesome and I think it's fun and I think it's exciting. So I will spend at least a decent amount of time without like necessarily worrying about how I'm going to produce it or where it's going to be or what's going to happen with it. Because I, I don't, I don't want to quash the idea early on. Uh, and so there's about, I'd say 10 to 20% of my time and my team's time is fairly allotted to this kind of, you know, project development that's not, you know, we wouldn't call it green lit, right? We're not going to for sure make this, but we're going to play around with it and see if we can get it to somewhere that we're excited about. Um, and so I don't, I want people to stay like open in the sense of if you're something you're excited about, something you're passionate about, then, uh, you know, you should feel free to keep working on it, but don't invest tons of resources in it. Keep it you know, restrictive. I think uh, Jeff Bezos actually had a quote about this when they, you know, Amazon's very famous for having so many different types of crazy projects that they do, right? And they've, they've entered into every field imaginable and some of them have been hugely successful and some of them have not, right? They, they, there, was a, there was a Fire phone for a little while that didn't quite take off, but, you know, their, their server s systems end up becoming the most powerful thing in the world. And so what he does is he's like, look, as long as there is someone on his team that's like, that he respects, that's passionate about a project, they'll keep funding it. They'll keep trying um, even though it may or may not be ready for prime time, it may not, you know, get to be a full thing. So, so I, I think having some flexibility there, having some time dedicated to exploration is better. Then at some point projects move from that kind of exploration to, no, we're going to green light this. This is something we're really going to make, or I'll partner with somebody to make or whatever. We'll publish ourselves. And to make it into that realm, now it does need to check some other boxes, right? Which are, okay, what does it take to actually produce this? How much is it going to cost? Uh, which is, you know, what are the components? Does it need, how much unique art does it need? What other things are, you know, is it, what form is it? Digital, physical, whatever. And then I have to start thinking about, okay, what do I think the audience size is realistically? Is this something that I can fund? And if it's medium successful, it'll be fine and whatever. Is this something that could be a home run hit? Uh, is it, how much effort is it going to take from the team to do it, right? So a project like Soul Forge Fusion is a huge amount of effort, right? We have to build a whole new infrastructure for how do you digitally print these cards. It's a full, it has to be balanced and developed just like a trading card game. It has 20,000 unique permutations of possible cards and millions of unique permutations of decks just in set one alone, right? That's absurd amount of work. So I need to know, I need to know that it's going to be, have the potential to be very successful to be worth that work. But like the pressure lock deck building game that I'm working on, it's like, I know how to make deck building games. I know they're not that expensive to produce. I know I can make that function. So I can green light that with a lower 
necessary threshold of kind of success. And so the, when, we'll, and what I try to do is balance my portfolio to say that I'm going to have, you know, no more than two or three like big projects at a given time, but maybe five or six smaller projects that'll be kind of greenlit and moving forward to kind of fill out the calendar for stuff that will be like, and then for, of there, so it'll be like, you know, eight greenlit projects at a given time running for, for, and then there'll be the, you know, half dozen to a dozen of these incubating projects of stuff that are interesting and we're working on, but I haven't quite like committed to putting a ton of resources into yet. So that might've been a little bit more detail, but I know you like to get crunchy here. So I wanted to give like some very concrete things. So hopefully that's helpful. Yeah, that's great. And one thing that as you were talking about like the pitch and like, does this get people excited? Does it, does this get me excited? The way I look at it is the O moment. And there's one of, one of two ways that the O moment can go. Someone can say, Oh, tell me more. Like when you post something online or you post the box art or you post the premise of the game. And like you were given a few premises earlier, those couple sentences of the elevator pitch. If someone goes, Oh, I want to know more about that. Ooh, can I buy that game? Ooh, where's the landing page? Oh, when's the Kickstarter? Okay, now we have something versus someone going, oh, that's just pandemic with a different theme, right? It's like, what kind of O do you get? And this is measurable because you can put it out there online. There's all sorts of Facebook communities and you probably have playtesters that you're familiar with or friends with. And you say, hey, I got this idea. What do you think of this? And uh, what kind of O do they give you? And then that might help you kind of figure out, do I pursue this? All right, so in your own designing, You've, you've figured out that this is a good idea. This is a, a good O. This is somebody going, ooh, tell me more. And now you're going to turn that into a prototype. And so give me some of your best practices, maybe any tips and tricks as far as taking the idea out of your head, out of your notebook, and then turning it into something physical that can be played. All right. So so just to to clarify, right, the, the process that I just described from, you know, idea to you know, we're going to actually publish this thing is many, many iterations of prototyping and cycling through, right? I'm prototyping and practicing the pitch part at the same as I'm prototyping and practicing the game mechanics and things. So, so there's, there's many iterations that happened before I would get to green light, let alone actually, you know, publishing. So when I'm talking about how do I get an idea from my head onto paper, right? So I, the core design loop as a, you know, is, is, you know, I, you ideate, come up with the idea, and which we've talked about. Framing is the second step where I try to say, okay, what is the what is the scope of what I'm trying to do here, right? What I said, I'll say, okay, this is going to be a card game for two to four players, age 16 and up, right? Or whatever it is that you want, right? Pick something. And you may not know for sure what you want yet, but, but try to pick something concrete to start because it helps to focus you. And then most importantly, we've already talked about this some, set a deadline. Okay, I'm going to have a prototype ready in two weeks. I'm going to have a, a first draft of the rules ready in 10 days, whatever it is. Try to set short-term deadlines um, as much as possible so they force you to act. Uh, set deadlines so that helps and you know who you're trying to hit with it. You have your, so your idea of your target audience, idea of the scope of what the game is going to be, and then when are you going to get your next steps done? What's your, what's your deadlines? Then from there, I move into brainstorming. Brainstorming is step three. That's where I will try to get as many ideas as possible down on paper that sort of fulfill the core experience I'm trying to create, the core idea, and fit within the frame. Uh, and then, uh, and so that's broken down into three parts. The first part um, is is open ended um, ideation, where you just anything goes. Write down as many ideas as you can for 20 minutes, ideally, um, and don't stop writing. It doesn't matter how crazy they are. You sh you turn off the censoring part of your brain. The second part is um, organization where you try to take that giant mass of ideas and sort of organize it into chunks 
Um, and, and specifically when you're making games, you want to organize it into sort of chunks like, okay, what are my components? How does the game start? How do players win? How do they interact, right? Sort of try to fill in the gaps to make a complete game. And as you're doing that, you'll see them, there are missing chunks and you should fill those in as you go. And then the final step is elimination where your inner critic turns back on and you try to get rid of as much as possible of what you wrote down and just the, what's the least amount that I can prototype to test my ideas. And that's like, really critical because you're shifting from this phase of everything's possible and and you want to be you know creatively pushing the boundaries to i want to be as lazy as possible right i want to say when i my principles for prototyping are like keep it simple keep it stupid like as the minimum work you can do because prototyping is hard it takes a lot of work it's not fun it's like and so you want to minimally your prototype as little as you can to test and see if your idea is okay so you don't need to be able to complete a whole game if you're trying to figure out whether you know you can handle whether a pressure luck deck building game could work. Okay, what would it, what what's like you know if I did a dozen cards I was going to design for this and what would that look like and how would I play it? And so as opposed to having to make a whole thing, right? So so that's a really important part of of how you get to prototyping. And then from there, you know, prototype away with whatever tools are available to you. Um, I used to prototype very much just you know writing on cards, like writing on little pieces of paper, putting them into card sleeves with a regular card back and playing and shuffling and going, right? Or even like writing on a regular deck of playing cards with a Sharpie. Uh, that was kind of how I f- would first start doing stuff. And that works fine. And if that's what you have available to you, just do it, right? Whatever's easy that you could change and modify. Nowadays, uh, in part, thanks to uh, the lessons from the pandemic, uh, almost all of my prototyping is done on Tabletop Simulator, uh, which is great because it's pretty fast for us to do. It lets me play test with people all around the world. And um, it's you know quick to iterate and, and update. But whatever the tool you choose to use is, um, the, the important thing is that it's, it's fast and, and easy for you to make changes to because that's inevitably what you're going to do. And in fact, resist the urge of making your prototype too pretty when you first start, because if you make your prototype too pretty, that means you don't want to change it. And if you don't want to change it, you're not going to learn as fast as you would need to. And so that's kind of the, the process that gets me into prototype and testing. Yeah, absolutely. I like to pursue what I call can't miss goals, goals so small and so easy that I can't miss them. Uh, For instance, it's not my goal to go to the gym and do an hour long workout. It's my goal to walk through the door of the gym just to walk through the door. That's the goal. If I, as long as I do that, then I've accomplished what my goal is. But what I find is that when I walk through the door of the gym, you know, I've got my workout clothes on. I got my shoes on. I got my water bottle. I got my towel. You know what? I'm already here. I might as well work out for an hour or 30 minutes. Like, I'm, I'm already here. I'm already doing it. But my goal, if it's if my goal is to work out for an hour, then I am much less likely to do it than if my goal is, hey, I just want to just want to walk through the door. And so I feel like it's the same thing with prototyping. If your goal is to prototype this game that's this like two-hour experience and you got all these cards and all these boards and player boards and dice and all this stuff, that's massive. And it's really overwhelming. And the odds of you doing it are kind of low. But if your goal is I am going to write some things down on note cards and uh, and just see what happens. Like if you just kind of lower things down all the way to like one tiny mechanism or part of a mechanism or one part of your combat system, or I'm just going to create 10 cards. Like if you lower things down to these can't miss goals, a lot of times you pick up momentum, you pick up some dopamine as well, and then it kind of pushes you forward. And so tell me about like what some of your early designs look like. You mentioned note cards, you mentioned Sharpies and things like that. But even now, like after you've been doing games for, for all this time, what would surprise people about your prototypes? Because I mean, you have games that are beautiful. You have games that are just amazing looking with the graphic design and the box art and all that stuff. And so if somebody were to walk into your game design space, look on your desk, what would they be surprised by? Well, uh, I have 
uh, I always keep around me. So I, it's actually funny because I just now I'm starting a year of kind of being a digital nomad and I actually have no home base right now. I'm traveling different places and places because uh, in part everything is, you know, I've been doing everything online and I can do everything from wherever I am. And so most of my stuff is gone, but I still keep with me. I have a bunch of random prototypey physical tools that I always like to have around. And I know this is something you actually created for people uh, as a product, I think. And, and, but it's like, I have, you know, some dice of different types. I have some, you know, beads and little meeples and I have a deck of cards and of course a Sharpie and, you know, sleeves and little cards. And I will actually physically take these things out as I'm thinking through ideas and just kind of move them around and manipulate them on the table. And it helps like when we talked earlier about playing, playing the game through in your mind, you know, I find this a lot easier when I can lay things out on the table and kind of just move stuff around and have some physicality to my my thinking. Uh, and so that's something that I still, even as I've tried to limit myself to the least amount of stuff I can have uh, to work. And, 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 you know, most of my work is, you know, spreadsheets and, and, and doing things in, in data. I mean, like, if you don't love spreadsheets, you should not become a game designer or you should learn to love spreadsheets because that's where that's where the vast majority of the work gets done. But uh, but the, the the physicality of little things to play with that can be both inspiration and can help you to visualize what's going on is can't be underestimated, especially, of course, when you're working on tabletop games. But even with digital games, I find uh, that it's still useful to have have that sort of stuff to play with. So um, always having something to kind of help with, uh, you know, objects that, to help with your brainstorming and, and mind mapping of what's going on, I think is, is something that's really, really powerful. Yeah, definitely. All right, let's switch gears. So you've got a game, you've designed it, you've prototyped it. Now we're moving into playtesting. So tell me about your playtesting process. Does it have phases where you playtest it by yourself a hundred times, then you move on to like friends, or, and then you eventually get to you know unguided playtesting? Tell me about how you go through the playtesting process now. Yeah, there's there's absolutely phases. Um, you know, and 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 you'll you'll scope out as you as you go forward. So there's there's. Uh, there's something what I call the phases of design, which is as you're going through the core design loop, right? The core design loop, which I've talked about, so it's you have your inspiration, you have your framing, brainstorming, prototyping, testing, and iterating. And that's the circle you're going to go through over and over and over again. As you go through that circle, you learn, you're asking a question every time. You're asking some fundamental questions like what's going on here, right? So the, and the phases of design represent the types of questions that you're asking. So there's what I call core engine, you know, core engine design, where it's like, what is fun here? What's the experience I'm trying to create? You know, what is this game about? Right? You're trying to get the basics down, right? What's the fun? What's the heart of the game? What's the core tension of the game? What's the thing that's going to get people coming back? What's the, you know, what's the elevator pitch going to be? Why are they going to pay attention? Are you trying to answer these fundamental questions? And so you can generally be, and you should be very, very loose about all of the detail level questions, right? Are, are these cards balanced? What strategies are viable? What's the art look like? What's the names? What's the templating? Like all that stuff. In fact, it's a common designer mistake, as I'm sure you well know, that people will focus a lot on those latter things until they have the, before they have the big questions answered. And so when you're in this core engine design phase, it's super helpful to do, of course, your mental play tests and your play tests by yourself, and also play tests with a group of people who know what they're doing right and so i'm very lucky i have a court you know a team of designers that i work with they're very talented and they know to ignore the fact that these cards aren't balanced this stuff's not going to work these are problems that can be solved later and they can focus on here's okay this is fun this isn't fun 
this is the thing that's going to be the core tension in your game, or you think this is the core tension in your game, but really it's this, you should focus on this, this is what matters, right? And so you, so having a group of people who are a bit more sophisticated and can see past the ugly of your prototype and see past the unpolished stuff is super helpful. And so that's what I'll do. I'll first work with the team. Then I will, once that kind of gets to a point where it's a reasonable place to be, I get to core engine development where you're trying to get the, you know, kind of get the basic framework around how long a game takes to play, what components are there, what are the ranges of numbers you're going to work with. You could kind of start dialing some of that stuff in. Uh, and then now I can start showing it to some more people. And so I actually have a, a think like a game designer masterclass and we actually have a uh, think like a uh, Stoneblade Discord where we let people in to see our games early. And so sometimes I'll start showing stuff off to them that now they're, you know, not professional designers, but they've been exposed to the kind of principles of design a little bit. They're somewhat familiar with our games. So they can now kind of start getting feedback from that sort of a group. And then we we'll move into things like component design and component development, where you're trying to actually now, in the case of like a trading card game, for example, figure out what each of the cards does, how the set comes together, component development, now you'll start actually working, caring about the numbers and costs and balance, because very often when you start exposing things to the public, they're all they focus on is that, right? They're going to focus on these little details. And so by the time you want to start expanding and getting playtest results from a broader audience, and I'll start inviting people in from our email list, I'll start having playtests that will happen, you know, without me in the room or in the virtual room and have people play out of just the rules, uh, out of just the rule book. Uh, now you're going to start to want to have that stuff dialed in uh, in much more detail. You want to have more closer to real looking graphics, closer to final looking um, elements, because that's what people are going to comment on and react to. And so that's where you can get the most useful feedback uh, from the, the broader groups. And so each stage, depending upon the types of questions you're asking, uh, will not only dictate what type of prototype, how much effort you should put in your prototype, but also how broad the audience that you can get feedback from realistically and reasonably is uh, as you expand. Gotcha. Now, when it comes to making changes in between playtests, in between iterations, how many changes do you make? I've talked to some designers, and they say they never change more than one thing at a time. That way it makes it real easy to pinpoint. Do you change a lot of things, maybe a, one major change, some minor tweaks, that kind of thing? Like, how do you know, first of all, what to change, and then how many changes in between? Oof, that is a, that is a good and difficult question. I wish I had the discipline to only change one thing at a time. I, uh, <laughs> I do not. Uh, but I think that the... Uh, it, it varies. It varies very much depending upon the phase that you're in. So when I'm in the early phases and it's core engine design or core engine development, I'm changing a lot and I'm moving in big chunks, right? Like I'd rather double all the numbers and or cut all the numbers in half or cut an entire system or add, you know, early because I want to learn as much as I can with each playtest cycle. And so when I jump into a new thing, I'll see, okay, this is not working well enough. Let's see if I double it. Is it interesting now or is it, oh, no, it's still not interesting. It, it, it's just a bad system. I should cut it as opposed to like, oh, it just wasn't incentivized enough so people aren't playing with it. And so it, I start making big leaps and trying to get to the stuff that, and because I'm focused on big questions um, and I might change a lot up front. Uh, and then as I want to narrow in on the specific questions, then I will change less, right? And so that's why every time you go through this core loop, every time you play test, you should have questions in mind. What is it you want to learn? And so if you just want to learn about one specific thing, then yeah, don't change anything except for that specific thing or stuff that relates to it. If you want to learn and you're still trying to figure out where the fun is, then you should feel free to move in larger chunks and move things forward. So um, I think when you're first getting started, it can be uh, changing less 
is probably better so that you can learn more about what's happening. I think because I've done this as long as I have, I can usually note a few different things and change stuff and, and, and get a, an intuitive sense of what's, what's moving, what's important, and what's moving the needle in one direction or another. So I can kind of move to go faster uh, in a lot of these cases. So it, the, the metric I always use is, okay, what am I trying to learn here? And what's the least amount of work that I can do to learn that? And sometimes that means moving a lot and moving fast. And sometimes that means moving a little and just focusing on the, the changes of those small things. So I wish I could give a more like 100% concrete, this is what you do answer, but it really does. If, if, if I was going to give one guidance, it's that just be focused on the question that you're trying to answer all the time. And then whatever changes you make have to serve that experiment that you're running. Yeah, that's really good advice. All right, let's switch gears a little bit. Let's talk about going from a game design and now you're talking about a product you're going to put on the market. You're probably going to go to Kickstarter or you're going to do some kind of marketing, whatever, to get it out to customers. What do you what are you thinking? When do you start kind of making that change? Is it early on, like early like idea stage? Like, oh, how do I make this product? Like, what are you thinking and how like how does that work? Let's talk in terms of, you know, new designers trying to understand the behind the scenes of, of publishers creating products, not just games. Tell me about that. Yeah, so it's, I mean, it's interesting because I can attack this from two different angles, right? There's the sort of internally, like, how do I think about it when I'm making something and putting it out versus if I'm pitching to somebody else or somebody else is pitching to me, like, what types of things do I think about? So I'll try to tackle both here. So, you know, universally, right, you, as a publisher, you're the one that's taking the risks, right? You're the one that's putting the money down to get this thing made and get it to market. And, you know, it it's it's bad if it doesn't go well, right? You lose money. And if it does go well, then fantastic. And so you really want to be thinking about that same way as I was talking about early in the design process, you know, you do want to be thinking some about the, the risk reward criteria of when you go to green light a project, is it, you know, how much is it going to cost me to make this thing? And then how much, and then what is the, like, what are the potential upsides, right? What's the, what's my like, you know, what's my likely floor scenario? What's my likely ceiling scenario? And then that ratio needs to make sense for me to decide to green light a game. And this is going to be true for any publisher, you know, whether you're, you're pitching or not. Right. So when I'm designing a game myself, that's something that's kind of always in the back of my mind, but I don't make it front and center until we get to that green light decision. If it's something I'm serious about wanting to create, which means people are already having fun with the game. Like it's super, it's fun and enjoyable and people are excited and wanting to play more. Right. That's my, that's my general, like the easiest metric for is your game ready to go or ready to pitch is, you know, are people independently asking you to play that are not just, you're saying play this and please play test this for me. Right. Are people, do people want to keep going regardless of without you prompting them? Um, that's a really great sign. And so that's, that's, that's a key. That's a baseline for me. I'm not even going to dream of making a game unless it hits that criteria. Now, once it hits that criteria, now I got to think, and that's true if somebody's pitching to me or not. Now I've got to think, okay, what's that? What's that ratio look like? And so when you're thinking about your own game designs, right? If it's just you know cards and cardboard, that's one thing. If it's going to require miniatures, if it's going to require some kind of fancy additional components, if it's got hundreds of pieces versus dozens of pieces, right? All that stuff really matters at the bottom line. Like, okay, how many? What's the minimum number of units I'm going to need to sell this thing to get my money back? What's the realistic? max right is how much am i going to have to retail this product for right if it's something that i can retail for twenty dollars or forty dollars versus something that's going to cost eighty dollars or a hundred dollars that's a huge difference in the audience that i can reach and how many people i have to sell to to be able to get it to work it does it lend itself to kickstarter as a model right now obviously things that are going to be on the higher end of price point or things with miniatures maybe are more likely to go to kickstarter but if i'm going to be doing something that's just 
you know, just cards and cardboard. Maybe I'm not going to Kickstarter, right? So I, I, those factors are all coming into play. And so just to make it kind of useful to people that are listening as a designer, you really need to be focused on what your components are and understanding kind of a range of like what those things are likely to cost. So you know what the retail price of the game is going to be and how, how niche is the design? Like how much is it going to be like appealing to, you know, uh, family audiences or core audiences or whatever. And so you can know, uh, get a sense of like where that game is going to land as far as how many copies are likely to sell. And, and then when it's a publisher, you also want to think about what the, what their audience is looking for, right? So I know my audience, right? Obviously, if it's if I'm making a new deck building game, I pretty much know like my audience is going to be happy to check it out because that's a lot of what people play. They buy Ascension, they've Shards of Infinity. If I'm making a new pressure luck deck building game, I'm pretty confident that my floor of sales is going to be reasonably high. But if I'm making a new category of game, right? Something that nobody's ever seen before uh, and it's maybe not in my normal wheelhouse, um, then it would cause a little bit of a pause. And in fact, this is something where I actually worked on a game um, called Night of the Ninja, which I created, which is a really fun um, uh, social deduction game with like drafting card mechanics. So it's like, you know, the idea of being it's mafia, the fun of like werewolf and mafia, but playable in five minute rounds without a narrator and some like cool, like innovative drafting components, which is a fun game. But I actually didn't think it was a good fit for Stoneblade because if we don't have that kind of that kind of game in our category, it's actually partnered with Brotherwise Games to launch it with them. And so sometimes a product, even for myself, who can publish my own games, I don't always think that it's the right fit if it doesn't fit with the brand of the publisher of the, of the games that you have. And so this is when you're pitching, it's really useful to know who you're pitching to, what kinds of games they want, and whether it's going to be something that's going to fit into their wheelhouse. So these are all things that come in through my mind as a publisher and can also it should be useful when you're thinking about them as a designer. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. All right, let's keep talking about categories and different types of games and whatnot. At this point, you've designed card games, board games, miniatures games, uh, hybrid digital games. And so is there, are there anything, is there anything that stands out in your mind that's different? Obviously, things are different, right? But anything in general, the general concepts, or is it all kind of the same? It all follows a very similar process? Or you know, do you have any stories of things that like you found to be different when you started designing a miniatures game? It's like, oh, I didn't realize that was the case. Anything like that? Yeah, it's, I mean, yeah, there's, there's tons of these things and they're, they're, they're the sort of stuff that you get as you get more domain knowledge in a given space. So, so the universal principles of design are the same, no matter what you can follow the exact process that we've talked about here on this podcast for, it doesn't matter where you are, whether it's a miniatures game, video game, card game, whatever, right? It's all the, the process is the same, but then the, the limitations and advantages of the medium are things that become clear over time, right? So, um, one of the nice things about Ascension as a, as an, um, you know, it was designed as a physical game, but then became an app and then why it works really well as an app, even more so than something like Dominion is that it only has that six card center row and there's limited amounts of information that you need to process to be able to know what to do with your turn. And you can go and play on a small screen. So knowing the limitations of the screen size and building to that is one element of digital play. And that's why when we did SoulForge, Right? We built it so that it only had five lanes of combat. You can't just play a million cards out and play. But you know that means that some of the play is limited. Right, the, the game is much more about creature combat and life totals than, say, Magic the Gathering, where, yeah, parts of it are creature combat and life totals, but you can also have these crazy scenarios where you've got 100 squirrels in play and you have you know all kinds of other wacky things that are going on. And so, so the different medium that you're choosing matters a lot and when you jump from one medium to another you've got to recognize you're taking on the advantages and disadvantages of both 
Um, and so those things matter. When you're talking about a miniatures game, and fortunately, I, I mean, I had a lot of experience with miniatures games back when I was working on the, the World of Warcraft miniatures game, even before I started my company, and I had to learn the production side of it too. Um, miniatures games have a huge upfront cost in like to make that first miniature is very expensive because you have to cut the molds and you have to get, you know, cut steel basically and be able to produce them. Uh, but then once you produce them at scale, it's, it becomes more cost effective. Uh, so that's why miniatures games are so great for Kickstarter, because once, if you can know you're going to sell a certain number of copies, then you can sell them at a reasonable price and everything's fine. But if you're only going to sell a couple, it, you're going to, it's a real, it's a real big problem. And so, you know, I'm speaking about it both from a, from a production standpoint and from a design standpoint, you want to be thinking about what those advantages and limitations are, right? If you're playing a miniatures game, the physicality of the miniatures is a big part of the fun. And so how do you leverage that, right? How do you make the miniatures, you know, movement of the miniatures and their their positioning and placement, how do you make that feel good and look good when somebody's coming by and glancing at, glancing at the table? If you're making a game for the phone, you want to be thinking about, okay, how can I make this very bite-sized? How can I make this something that you can interact with in a minute or two and have a complete gameplay experience, ideally in like five minutes, um, you know, at 15 at the top end versus when I'm going to sit down to play, if I'm going to sit down and play a miniatures game and the game lasts a minute or two, I feel really cheated, right? Like it's just not going to work. And so you really want to think about the player's habits for each of those different platforms, uh, player expectations for each of those different platforms. Um, and then what design, uh, you know, what are the unique things you can bring to it? How do you leverage what's going on? And so I always try to think about whatever the medium that I'm trying to design for really looking at it from all the different angles. What is it that people, what's good about this? What are the limitations about this? What are the things that people have done successfully? What are the things that people haven't done that maybe you could do? You know, I, one of the examples I really like is, you know, when it comes to a card game, uh, when, what are the different ways that you could utilize the cards? You know, so there's games like the old um, Decipher uh, Star Wars game where you had the cards were representing your force power, which was your energy, and also your life as your deck got milled. And also you could draw those cards into your hand and things like, you know, taking or, or there was an EVE uh, online did a card game where the orientation of the ships while they were in your base was the, the time it took to build them, but the orientation of the ships while they were out and deployed could give were standing orders you could give them, right? Or you could take the, the fact that I have these physical cards that can change orientation is now something I want to leverage and go. And so I, I always love to see whenever I have a new medium that I'm designing for, what are the different aspects of it that I can leverage and what are the restrictions that I need to, to design around? Yeah, absolutely. That's great advice. And I think we're back again to empathy, putting yourself in the shoes of gamers and the people that are going to experience this and just being intentional about the game design. Don't just run off and design a game, like really be intentional about why you're doing certain things and, and who is that going to be marketed towards and just kind of thinking through the overall game, not just, oh, I'm excited about this thing. Like it's also to be excited, but also be intentional. I think there's a lot of value there. All right. So Justin, you've been doing this a while. If you could go back, like what are some things that you know now that would have been really nice to know when you first got started? Less is more. <laughs> <laughs> this is the most important thing. And it's so hard. And new designers, they always want to be like, well, okay, I want to make a game. And it's like Halo and World of Warcraft, but like with some extra mechanics thrown in, you know? And it's like, okay, whoa, whoa, slow down, buddy. <laughs> right? Start, start with less. And, and in fact, you know, even if you're not like crazy ambitious with your first designs, most of the time your designs can be improved by cutting things rather than adding things, right? It's like, you know, what I said, while I said, you know, Ascension was Dominion with, you know, taking Magic's drafting mechanic and combining it with Dominion's deck building. It also, 
I cut out all the things that I could that I could from that original game, right? I cut out the setup time to just shuffle up a deck and go. I cut out the action restrictions. I cut out like all you know these sort of victory point cards that don't do anything. Like I tried to cut as much as I could from that game to make it better. And and so much of the designs, I look back especially at my first designs when I was the lead design of um, the Infinite Crisis expansion for the Versus System Trading Card game. I put. It's there's a lot of cool stuff in there, but I tried to pack so many designs and so much stuff in there, and like some of the cards are just like tons of text on them, and I could have cut half the mechanics from that set, and it would have been cleaner and and a better flow overall. And so so the number one kind of lesson that is just so common as a new player that I just and, and as a new designer rather that I that I I would go back and, and tell myself it's just you know when in doubt cut it out <laughs> you know like really focus on less things uh and just execute those things super well because the execution is is the heart of the whole thing right that how good your idea is how clever you want to show off you are like all that stuff i'm not saying it has zero value but it is you know a small fraction of just if you can just do a few things really really well uh you could you could be a huge success yeah for sure this is something i have definitely found to be the case in my own designing if i looked back at my games four or five years ago even they were so massive compared to what I design now. And another side effect of this, this is a really positive side effect, is less uh, game designing also means less rules to write, which rulebook writing is typically the bane of the designer's uh, experience. And so, hey, if you make smaller games, not necessarily smaller games, but games with less going on, there's fewer rules to write, and it makes it a little bit easier. And so that's been definitely my experience. Anything else that you wish you had known? Hmm. Um, I think the important thing of it's a very small community and you um you really want to treat everybody well with respect and you want to uh learn from and contribute as much as you can uh early on and this is something i i did a a decent job of uh at first but it only became more and more apparent to me over time right your career as a game designer you should be looking at it as a long game not a short game how well any one given game does is not as important. How well you do it, whether you get one particular job or not, is not important. What's important is that you are a good person to work with that adds value to whatever community that you're in, and you're constantly learning and growing. Those three things are just you know the heart of success in any field, frankly, um, but it is so important. And I think I got too hung up early on on like, no, no, this game has to be the one, right? If I don't, this doesn't succeed, like I'm a failure, right? If this is a, and everything has to be my way because I obviously know know the best. And uh, a little bit of humility uh, combined with that longer term perspective uh, is definitely something I would uh, I would tell my younger self. Yeah, I totally agree. Justin, this has been excellent, man. Closing thoughts. What would you tell game designers? Like what, if you could boil down maybe your experience or maybe some of the best advice that you ever received, what would you say? Yeah, I think, you know, to me, there's there's a few key aspects to this, right? Work hard and learn from your mistakes is one of my one of my mantras, right? It's just you you it takes effort to do this well. Um, and you will absolutely make mistakes and be prepared for that. And if you turn those mistakes into lessons and you turn those mistakes into growth, then they're not failures. They're just stepping stones. They're the process for learning. And as much as possible, um, you know, obviously consuming information is great. This podcast is phenomenal. Obviously, I put that content out there myself and my book and podcast and things like that. But also the doing is the heart of it. And I know this is a message you say all the time, Gabe, which is fantastic. And it's and and if you could find a community that supports you, 
uh, that will make it much better. If you have deadlines that support you, that will make it much better. And if, if it's okay to do a brief plug of, of what I've, something I've built to help with this is the, the Think Like a Game Designer Masterclass, uh, which is designed to give you, we actually do it, we've only, we've run two of them so far. We're going to be running another one, uh, which we'll be opening up um, for in uh, uh, signups for uh, in June. And uh, we will, it basically is a three month kind of boot camp where you actually will have deadlines. You, we will, we do kind of masterminds. So I and my team help you with problems as you're going through it. You have a ton of other people that are designers that are learning the same principles to work with that are all pushing each other along. And it's been amazing. I've seen more progress from the people that have been in this course than I've seen in years of other people that have just been doing work on their own. And whether you join this course or not is just find a group that's like this, right? There are other people that are out there, find communities that are like this, that are going to find people who will actually hold you accountable to move the ball forward. Um, because there's no more powerful thing I found than, than that kind of a process. Uh, and so if you're out there and you've been listening to this podcast, you've listening to others, you know, it means you're passionate about this. And if you, if you haven't been taking the steps to do it, uh, find people to help, find a community to help put it public, make public posts about what you're going to do and, and give, put that extra pressure and leverage to really get you to, to take those steps and move forward because it's, it's, it's a great path. And, and, and to, to, to tangent with another brief story, which I don't remember if I told it the first time I was here. Right. But, you know, I said, I had a, a, an, an ill-advised trip to law school. You know, I was supposed to be a lawyer. My parents were lawyers. I was, you know, in going, you know, I was supposed to, I was destined. That was my path. And it seemed like the natural thing to do. And it was something that had made me miserable. And I kept putting off this idea that like, I could actually have a professional career as a game designer for the longest time. And it, you know, I, I was fortunate to be able to get the opportunity to do it. And it was so difficult for me to make the choice, even though now in retrospect, it seems like, duh, of course, that was the right move. And so for those of you that are out there, they're in that place where you're in a career that you're not in love with, where you feel like there's a path and you can't divert from it. Um, I, I want to encourage you to, to, to push past that fear a little bit, right? And, and, and take the steps. Doesn't mean you got to quit your job tomorrow, but it does mean that you need to commit the time and the emotional resources to, tr to test your ideas, to fail to fall on your face to practice keep going and build that community build that process build those deadlines build that iteration loop that lets you actually get your games out there and i, and I hope to be able to get to play your game someday yeah absolutely uh, i've got a good friend that actually went through the first season i guess or the first class of the think like a game designer course and he's had incredible things to say about it it's really helped him move along in, in his game designing and so where can people find that if they want to learn learn more yeah, so so the best thing is if you go to thinklikegames.com, there's a you'll find a link for uh, the game design mastery course. Um, and if you haven't signed up already, there's an email list that you can sign up for where I send out new you know free information, interviews, design uh, updates, and thoughts uh, to anybody there. And that's obviously that's all completely free. And you can find out when the new class opens up and get the first opportunity uh, to sign up when it's available. Very. Cool. All right. You got a, another game project, the Soul Forge. You talked about it a little bit. Give me like the two minute elevator pitch for that one. I know you're doing some cool things with it now. Yeah, it is. It is so exciting to be able to bring this project back. It's the thing I was most passionate about being able to work with Richard Garfield, like the godfather of game design from my perspective, right? Making things like Magic the Gathering and Robo Rally and all these things. And he's working with me on this to take the, the, the initial idea of Soul Forge, which was these cards that leveled up as you played them as a digital game and turning into a physical game. And so it is 
like I said, if Keyforge and Smash Up had a Soulforge baby, that's what Soulforge Fusion is. And it means that everybody, every deck you buy is going to be completely unique. They can all be split into half decks and you can combine any two that you want. The cards themselves are algorithmically generated. We've actually created new technology to allow not only the decks to be algorithmically generated, but the cards themselves will be like spliced together different versions. So there's tens of thousands of permutations that are possible for cards alone in set one, let alone the number of millions and millions of possible deck permutations so that the experience is constantly new and interesting. And the gameplay is really fun because it's not only just the the, the tactical moment-to-moment combat, but also the strategic, okay, what do I want to level because I want to get this card available for later when I reshuffle my deck. There is, It is the thing that our team is like super addicted to playing and it's been so much fun. And so I can't wait to unleash this thing on the world. So this one is going to be coming to Kickstarter uh, soon. I think July is the most likely uh, date, but you know how these things go. Uh, and so if you're interested at all in that, uh, stoneblade.com slash soulforge, S-O-L-F-O-R-G-E. Um, or once again, if you sign up for the email list, we'll let you know. We also have a version that you can play right now if you go to our Discord, our Stoneblade Discord, um, which we can. Uh, we'll, we'll, there are links to uh, from the Stoneblade site. Uh, you can play in Tabletop Simulator for free right now uh, the version of Soulforge that exists and uh, help us to develop it and build it. Because that's actually been one of the most fun things about the playtest process uh, in the modern era is that now we can play digitally and we can have people give us feedback and help build the game even before the Kickstarter and especially during the Kickstarter. And so this is another thing, you know, regardless of whether you're interested in Soulforge, I think joining the, Sto- the Stoneblade Discord uh, and seeing these games in progress and being a part of that playtest experience, you can actually see how I do games, right? And see how they how they evolve based on feedback and what comes up. And so it's a great way to get practice uh, for the kinds of work that you maybe want to do if this is the type of game you're interested in. But it's also super fun. So I, I hope to see a lot of you guys there. Awesome. Well, Justin, really appreciate your time. Really appreciate you coming on the show. Good luck with the course and the Kickstarter and everything else you got going on right now. It is always a pleasure to be here. I love what you do for this community and the lessons that you continue to reinforce. So I'm uh, I'm really excited to be here and I'm looking forward to the third time when that comes around. Yeah, that'd be great. Thanks for listening. Hosting for the Board Game Design Lab podcast is sponsored by Quartermaster Logistics, the leader in crowdfunding fulfillment and warehousing. Check them out at qmlogistics.com and find all sorts of game design resources, bonus material, and chances to win free games at boardgamedesignlab.com. And until next time, keep designing, keep playtesting, and keep creating great games. Did I mention keep playtesting?